Thank you very much, everybody. It's a great honor to have the Crown Prince with us. Uh, Saudi Arabia has been uh, a very great friend and a big purchaser of equipment and lots of other things. And one of the link that we have with Saudi Arabia is historic. It is an important one, and it has saved the lives of potentially hundreds of people in this country. What happened to Khashoggi was outrageous. Mr. President, yes. you're coming under a lot of fire for your fist bump with the Crown Prince. Why? <laughs> in recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve, and will it succeed? In this new series from Intelligence Squared, we'll seek to answer these questions and more. I'm Connor Boyle. In part one, we first need to go back to the very beginning and understand how the kingdom came to be so wealthy in the first place. So I reached out to Saudi professor of social anthropology at the London School of Economics, Madawi al-Rashid. She's the author of books including Salman's Legacy, The Dilemma of a New Era in Saudi Arabia, and The Sun King, which looks at how the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman is changing the kingdom. I started off by asking her to take us back to the beginning and the foundations of the Saudi state. The modern state was announced and recognized by the international community in 1932. And this was uh, the third time the ruling family, the Al Saud, had attempted to regain their power base in the Arabian Peninsula, which it, it was its name before it became known as Saudi Arabia. So in 1932, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia was coined as the name for the new entity. And this new entity took almost um, 30 years for it to be forged as a result of conquest by the ruling family, the Al Saud, that used their base in 1902 and spread from Riyadh, the capital, to other parts of the Arabian Peninsula until they reached the limit of their expansion as it, this expansion was beginning to collide with the territories under the control of the British in, for example, Jordan, Kuwait, and Iraq. Then the borders had to be fixed and approved by the British, who were the overlords at the time, of, of the whole of the Arabian Peninsula in 1932. And the state formation was a product of two important elements. One of them is the claim that the Al Saud were the historical leaders of, the, of, of this region. And the second one was religion. So under the pretext of re-Islamizing the Arabian Peninsula, using the Wahhabi, the radical religious teachings of this particular region in Riyadh and around Central Arabia, they were able to launch a conquest, which was dubbed as Jihad, against those Muslims whose Islam did not conform to the teachings of the Wahhabi tradition. And therefore, 
the Ibn Saud uh, amassed a tribal uh, force and launched this jihad against other Muslims, for example, in the western part of Saudi Arabia, the Hejaz, in the south, in the north, and to the east on the Persian Gulf. For this jihad became the pretext of spreading the hegemony of the Saudi state and also those who assisted it, for example, the radical religious preachers, had to be rewarded for their effort. Well, you've given us a really great overview there of the history of the country. But uh, when did it become clear that oil was going to be a big part of the story of Saudi Arabia? Early in the 20th century, uh, oil was discovered in other places near Saudi Arabia. So in Iran, in Iraq. Uh, and also in Bahrain and in Kuwait. So the, the, the geological surveys that many scientists uh, did indicated that there is a possibility that we have oil in Saudi Arabia. So the first uh, dealing, uh, the first focus on this oil came in the 1921-22. And a, a Lebanese uh, a traveler by the name of Rihani, Amin Rihani, who was an American Lebanese person uh, famous for writing books about uh, his travels, was sent and with, with some kind of oil company interest to find out and suss out the situation. Um, so he did travel and he looked at the social and political situation in Arabia with a view of starting negotiation on behalf of the oil companies. But the real um, discovery came with the geologist of what was called Aramco, and that is the American oil company that uh, started sending envoys to Ibn Saud and with the hope of establishing a mission to investigate and dig up specific sites where they suspected there was oil. And obviously, they discovered it in, in very good quantities. And what distinguished Saudi oil was, unlike in other places, it is very easy to extract and it's abundant. So uh, this makes it cheaper uh, for the oil companies and uh, also the proximity to the Gulf, the water, uh, which made it uh, possible to transport uh, on ships. Uh, and later on, obviously, there were pipes dug up in the desert to take it to the Mediterranean Sea and cut the journey to Europe and also uh, you know, make it easy to access uh, to the West, but to the Far East and, for example, China, India, Japan, that had to go through the Gulf. So this strategic location, the ease by which oil can be uh, extracted and the quantities made Saudi Arabia a cornerstone in Western foreign policy, specifically uh, the U.S. Can you give us a sense of how that oil money has transformed the kingdom, especially now as it's seeking to change its image, I suppose, attract tourists, attract business from the West? And many of its cities are starting to look a lot more like Dubai. Well, not quite Dubai, but it's getting there. So, yes, I mean, oil was important. But uh, if you think from the very beginning, like almost 90% of the Saudi income derived from one single commodity, which made the country vulnerable because this commodity, the price was dependent on market forces beyond Saudi Arabia. And throughout the second half of the 20th century, for like 50 years, the price was fluctuating. fluctuating. And Saudi Arabia would go through a boom 
uh, and I, I call them cycles of affluence and austerity because oil prices go up, the government spends, spend, spend, uh, have new projects designed and import labor and, and, and then the price plummets. And therefore, there is austerity to the extent that the Saudi government has to borrow money from the international money market in order to cover its expenses. And this has been a cycle going on. Um, if you remember 1973, there was the boom time because of the embargo, oil embargo, and therefore the price tripled. Then you have the 1980-86, the price just plummeted. Uh, then the most recent uh, crisis was in 2014, when oil prices went really down and Saudi Arabia was impoverished. They started borrowing. And uh, now we are in the boom era because of the Ukraine-Russian crisis, uh, COVID, then the revival the, uh, of the economy. So oil prices are high at the moment. So this kind of uh, logic prompted the Saudi government to think about diversification of the economy. It hasn't happened to the extent that they want it to happen. And at the moment, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, his flagship project is to diversify the economy. Hence, uh, making Saudi Arabia look like Dubai, encouraging tourism, encouraging industries. Uh, so, for example, projects to build armaments, build cars in Saudi Arabia. However, it's very difficult to see how this has become a success story simply because there are factors that mitigate against Saudi Arabia becoming an industrial or post-oil economy, even in technology like you know, uh, digital economy, etc. So one of them is shortage of labor. So in order to build a factory, Saudi Arabia has to import labor. So industrialization is out of question. Even in the most advanced economies now, they are moving to China, where industry is you know, empowered by cheap labor. So it's, it's very difficult for Saudi Arabia to compete and become a hub of an industrial nation. And so Mohammed bin Salman wants to create a trading nation alongside, you know, similar to Dubai. Now, Saudi Arabia doesn't have the infrastructure, the size, the small size of Dubai, where you could concentrate wealth. It's a vast country. Hence, he started building these cities that are almost like a mythical, such as Neom City, which the logic of it is to serve the international global community. But how much is it going to serve the local Saudi economy? If it's going to attract international business, then Mohammed bin Salman will have to work harder, not only on his reputation for Jamal Khashoggi, but also the repression that takes place inside Saudi Arabia, the lack of any kind of freedoms uh, that are associated with political rights. Yes, it's true. Now, Saudis and foreigners can dance in the streets, can enjoy concerts, can go to the cinema, the theater and enjoy sport. But that takes place in a dictatorship. The dictator allows people certain personal freedoms at the moment. So dancing, liberalization, social liberalization, but denies them every political and civil right. The final theme I want to talk to you about is, you know, you've spoken about this 
this dualism between liberalization and repression. And the big debate in the UK and in the West is, well, how should we approach Saudi Arabia? Like, There's a good chance that Mohammed bin Salman will visit the UK in the next few months. There's a lot of debate as to whether we need to be doing business with Saudi Arabia. This is a big, growing, young population with lots of money. The UK should be doing lots of business with Saudi and all these different areas from sports to security. And what, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, there are two sides to this. There is the Saudi side. From Hamad bin Salman's perspective, Britain is important, but not uh, a core country. Yes, there are historical links and trade training contracts for the Ministry of Defense, BAE system, uh, weapons sold to Hamad bin Salman. So from his point of view, that's important. He's got to train his their army, intelligence services, policing force. And quite a lot of uh, British institutions are implicated in that. Not only this, a lot of the bombs that Mohammed bin Salman used and the airplanes he used in the war on Yemen are British made. And Britain makes quite a lot of money from uh, selling Mohammed bin Salman weapons. It actually comes as the second after the US in terms of what it sells to Mohammed bin Salman. And also there are other educational links, um, you know, trade, all that. Also, London is extremely important for, uh, you know, its stock market, for its legal system, for dispute settlement, etc. So it is important. Also, being rehabilitated and have the red carpet rolled for him in London is a victory for Mohammed bin Salman after he's been shunned by civil society, I would say, not the government of Britain. Government of Britain continue to do relations business as normal, even after Mohammed bin Salman was um, uh, responsible for uh, killing, for repression, etc., for the war in Yemen. So uh, from his perspective, it's a triumph uh, that he was able to be uh, received and honored by Britain as much as he was very happy when he was honored by President Macron in France this summer, last summer. So that that's the point of Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, he wants a foreign investment, which probably comes through banks in the UK, to flow into Saudi Arabia to finance his projects. But from the perspective of Britain, obviously Britain, like other countries, uh, wants to continue the arms sale with, with Saudi Arabia. And Britain is a small country in the grand scheme of economies. It's actually becoming smaller and smaller, especially after Brexit. So from the British perspective that we actually in Britain need Mohammed bin Salman, we need the trade because we are cut off from the, all the European market now and we have to search for new uh, um, uh, opportunities. Also, the British government always trumpet the uh, uh, how many jobs are dependent on selling Saudi Arabia arms. And according to some reports, not more than 9,000 jobs. So it's not such a big deal. But the money that flows into the British uh, uh, coffers from the sale of these arms exceeds you know, any kind of other trade that Britain has with any partner, any trade partner. And so, yes, but I mean, the message that we continue to say as an academic and as an activist, that Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice, 
and that is to make British cooperation uh, with Saudi Arabia, British trade with Saudi Arabia, uh, dependent on Mohammed bin Salman, uh, respecting international law and international norms, stop being an aggressor in the region, stop terrorizing his own population. These are important. Uh, according to the cynicist uh, in the British government, they always say, well, if we don't sell them arms, then the French would. But I think uh, the world should actually respect its own sort of rhetoric as Britain wants to have an ethical foreign policy. So far, I have not seen any ethics in British foreign policy. Thanks for listening to episode one of the Saudi Project. In part two, we'll be looking at how the development of regional rivals like the United Arab Emirates and Qatar are influencing what Saudi Arabia is spending its money on. This episode was hosted and produced by Conor Boyle. You can get access to the full series now by becoming a member of Intelligence Squared for just £4.99 on Apple Podcasts or by visiting intelligencesquared.com slash membership. All the episodes are available chronologically on the Saudi Project podcast feed, so search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts, or find out more in the episode description. Thanks again for all your support.